0: If you're a senior executive looking to transition to boards, check out our Fast Start Guide to Board Success. In this short guide, we'll answer all of your questions about landing a paid board role and we'll share some of the rookie errors executives make when trying to climb the board ladder. Jump on our website, boardcoachinginstitute.com.au or click on the link in the show notes to access your free copy today. If you're looking for board success, let us show you how. We want to do the very best we can in the time available to us, but it's the complete hallucination for us to believe that even as eight or ten well-intentioned, hopefully skilled, constructive directors, that we can stay on top of things. We simply cannot. It's a hallucination. Things are moving very fast. We are Dealing with customers who we might never meet because they're in geographies we can never visit, with suppliers who are dispersed. I call it the great dispersion. How do we really know what they're thinking about us, what they're saying, what opportunities they may be seeing, what risks they may be seeing? We've got dispersed capital. A very, very different world to the world in which boards were designed.
1: Hi, I'm Sally Parrish, Amazon best-selling author of The Essential Field Guide for Company Directors and founder of the Board Coaching Institute. I've been in, on and around boards for over 20 years, and if you, like me, are passionate about the boardroom, then this podcast is for you. And I'd love you to join me on this mission to decode board success what is it that sets some non-executive directors apart from the rest how can you enhance your leadership skills so you can be highly effective in the boardroom and what will it take to make board success a reality for you i hope you enjoy these episodes as much as i love making them and that they unlock the secrets for you to gain a competitive advantage and have massive impact and influence in your board roles let's get started it's great to have you on the episode. Thank you so much for joining us today.
0: Lovely to be here, Sally. Thanks for inviting me.
1: Let's start. You've got a very impressive, impressive resume here. Tell us a bit about yourself and what you're doing right now.
0: Thank you for the compliment. I'm a portfolio career person at this stage of my life. Most of my background is on LinkedIn, and that's interesting, but not necessarily always relevant to what one's doing in the moment and how one sees oneself. So, I've got three buckets. I still do strategic advisory work. There's a lot to unpack there, but we won't worry about it now. And that includes transformation advisory and M&A. So there's the consulting bucket. There is a teaching bucket. And I teach on two MBA programs, one over here in Australia and Sydney and one overseas. I teach various courses including corporate strategy, enterprise governance, and a few others. And so that's all in the second bucket. And the third bucket is Board advisory and governance work. So I'm on a board of a large natural profit, have been for many, many years. It's been a passion project. And I'm on a couple of advisory boards, one of which I chair. So that's the portfolio mix.
1: Brilliant. I love the spread that you've got there. Portfolio career, you know, I'm showing my age when I say this, but do you remember when if you had a gap on your CV, it meant that you were unemployable, right? But now we're free to move around and be between things and take pauses and try different things. So I love the ways of working now. And that's probably very much the attraction of board careers, right? In that you can have that really stimulating, challenging, influential leadership role, but not have to work 70, 80 hours a week in order to be effective at it. But to say that board meetings are, you know, one or two hours a month, that, I mean, that's absolutely challenging. What are you noticing about how board meetings are kind of evolving and the challenges that they're under right now?
0: Wonderful question. I'll, I'll try and attack it. So let's start with the pressures that boards are under, perhaps, and I think you're aware of the collaborative research I did with EY into board governance of the future. Now, these observations don't apply to all boards, obviously, so some may see some of these pressures, others may not. But I think this will contextualize some of the pressures they're under. And there'll be no surprises, I think, to your listeners. In no particular sequence, we're living in what everybody calls a VUQ world, volatile and certain, complex and ambiguous. And that means that the board has to pedal harder to really stay on top of things. Now we can unpack what is on top of things mean, but maybe let's get back to that. So we're in this world where things are far less predictable. Events come at you sometimes incredibly fast, particularly in the world of social media. As a director, assume that just because it's a weak signal doesn't mean it isn't going to happen or just because there's a little spot fire in the bush out there doesn't mean it's not going to be a full fire front yeah. very fast, et cetera. And you think uh, about some of the boards that got blown inside them. So these things happen and unfold very, very fast. So there's that VUCA. Then there's the volumetric issue, just the volume of data that's out there. And so that's a processing and capacity issue, which goes to the altar of can you do this job in two days a week? There's obviously a bigger question, which is in that volumetric question what is the data that's really salient, that's important, what are the insights the board really needs to receive. So there's a distillation process that executives and others need to help boards with, but there's still a volumetric issue. So I'm well aware from my research that there are boards that have 600-page risk committee reports or finance committee reports, and that's even before you get to the main board pack. Now, you could say that's a failure of the COSEC or the executive to write in a concise way, but still there's a volumetric issue. So that's the second thing for boards. The third thing is just the agenda is bigger than it ever was. And so we have all sorts of topics that are getting added, I have to say, with merit, of course, being on top of digital and AI and having a position on that and cyber and having a position on that and diversity and inclusion and making sure it's effective uh, and on ESG and unpacking all of that. So all of these things take time and capacity, but they're all coming at directors in different shapes and forms by board. So each board has got its own context. And you've got the bigger question around stakeholder capitalism. All of these stakeholders that are looking at us, that have some level of expectation on us, and how do we manage that? How do we understand it? How do we process it? So these are a whole bunch of forces that aren't necessarily going to disappear. And then the last one is, I think, the demands and transparency and accountability that people want to know. Our boards are deciding on certain things. We can only assume that five or 10 years from now, certain decisions made by certain boards may get litigated, not because it's the wrong decision today, but it turns out in the fullness of time. And so having a sense that at some point uh, we're going to be held to account if not immediately then in the future for maybe poor decisions we've made. So anyway, there's a long-winded answer about these forces which... The essence of, I don't think are dissipating. They're not abating these forces. They are there, and in one shape or form, they are hitting most boards.
1: Yeah. I just want to reference that report that you've mentioned there. That's the Board of the Future summary report that you published in conjunction with Ernest Young, and I am going to drop a link to that in the show notes for anybody who wants to download that. And I strongly suggest that you do because it's some really – Great information into not just where we are now, but what needs to change, right? And I think that's what we're seeing, Dean. We're we're kind of in this cycle at the moment where a board gets something wrong, that then becomes legislation, right? Boards must not get this thing wrong anymore. That becomes a responsibility on the director. Right. The director takes on that additional responsibility, which means now they want more oversight, more information on that, but there's nothing that's kind of changing the cause of the problem. Because what we've done now is overburden that director with more information, so that they're more likely now to drop the ball on the next thing, right? So we're just kind of fueling this problem that we have by adding more and more and more information to the board packs. I know that we're seeing things like the gender pay gap, for example, that's going to become something that needs to be reported at board level. And what are the boards supposed to do with this information? You know, what's the purpose? What's the intent? Well, the problem is that we have this horrendous gender pay gap in our corporations. So the legislation should be more aimed at the companies and what they're doing, but instead it's falling on the directors to have the awareness and kind of shame them, if you like, into doing the right thing. So how do we stop this? Like, how do we stop... The board packs getting bigger and bigger and bigger and the responsibilities and the liabilities on the directors getting more and more onerous because I'm hearing directors saying the juice ain't worth the squeeze. Do you know? There's just so much falling on them now. It, it, What's your it, it, thoughts around that? Well,
0: I've got a whole lot of thoughts. And it's a wonderful example. And you think about other compliance obligations, scope two, scope three, emissions reporting, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. which sooner or later boards are going to be accountable for. So the weight of expectations and the compliance demands, as you say, are just ramping up. So, if I step back from all of this, I think there are four possible positions that a board could take. Because if you continue this to its logical conclusion, something's going to break, right? Absolutely. The directors have to go full time, or the regulators have to step back and say, This is just too much of a burden. We you know, something's going to break. Or more importantly, what will break is that boards drop the pass because they don't report, and then there's a whole set of penalties. So anyway, what are the options, really? Well, one is you can say, as directors, we've just got to double down, right? We've got to just try harder, pedal faster, et cetera, et cetera. It's a bit like the frog in the pot, right? Just sort of manfully plow on and hope it will be okay. This too shall pass. And I don't think it is going to pass, right? So that's kind of one scenario. Second one is you say, well... A lot of the stuff doesn't apply to us and we're going to just develop a case to say, we don't need to do this and we would rather explain and comply. I suppose that's the second option and wh- whether the consequence. The third one is you say, well, actually we're spending so much time in compliance that we can't actually do our stewardship stuff. We can't do the strategy stuff. We can't do the board full site type roles and activities yeah. and we just have to just do what we can at a minimum and maybe therefore you go back to a minimalist type approach to governance that boards say deliberately, we can't do certain of the stuff, can only do X. We're going to communicate that to regulators and to our shelves, but we're just going to have to live with it because we're not chicken man, right? We can't everywhere, everywhere, you know, the old chicken man cartoon stuff. Uh, you, you, you know, the ubiquitous all-seeing, all knowing all board just is a hallucination. So maybe there's a, a movement to a day minimis kind of position or minimalist governance position. Maybe it's back to the future. Or I suppose the fourth option, I'm just sort of thinking aloud here, sadly, the fourth option is we say we have to do the stuff that's legitimate or we're too scared not to or whatever it is. So actually, we've now got to find models, mechanisms, and ways to deal with this expansionist agenda, and how do we deal with that? You know, how do we fundamentally redesign our board operating models, the structures, the processes, the skills, the mechanisms to allow for this very expansive set of demands by regulators, by society, by other stakeholders to do I, our very best?
1: And so I love lot, that it, question, Beth. Yeah. I'm not hearing anybody ask that question right nobody's asking how do we redesign what we do how do we do this stuff more effectively if we look at essential yeah. director update from the AICD running yes. every year right what's the yes. update yes. updates on you know the latest developments in governance regulations yes. directorship yes. so just yes. here's some more shit to land on your plate right and now you go figure out how to deal with it and like you say you know Double down, or ignore it, or you know take the consequences. They're not strategies, right? They're kind of up there with wishing, waiting, and hoping. And if we go back to the the very raw essence of why does a board exist? Right? Why is the board there? What's the legislation around? What's this fiduciary duty all about? It's to create value for the shareholders, right, or the owners of that business. To create value—that's the essence of the business. So that's either through creating opportunities, solving problems, mitigating risks. They're the top three, right? But if you can't do that because you're so bogged down in the compliance, the board's not effective, right? And we we talk about board effectiveness, and there's so many different parts of that that comes in, like, you know, how good are we at recording our minutes? How good are we at listening to each other in the board? None of that is going to solve this problem, right? And it's glaringly obvious to you, to me, and that is that at board level, we have this massive technological gap. My info security guys go mad when I say it's a tech gap. But, you know, they say it's bigger than that. It's, it's information security. But if we look at this massive, massive skills gap, which is around effectively using IT in today's world, so whether that's protection of data, whether that's yes. cybersecurity, whether that's artificial intelligence, you know, whatever that pot is, there's this huge void at board level in that skill set right and we're saying we need that on boards because boards have got to be better at protecting data but actually we need that on boards for the sake of boards and board governance right what could a board do if we could put somebody with that skill set on the board that could approach governance in a different way I mean you've got some great ideas around this what are some of the solutions that are out there for anybody that was looking at how are we going to do this differently how are we going to be more effective
0: let me start with the second part, and then I'll certainly get into some mechanisms that may work again for certain boards in certain circumstances. So I think your assertion is absolutely spot on, and that is if we just unpack the expectation around not just cyber, but digital transformation, AI-powered transformation, etc., as a sweeping generalisation, I think most boards will be saying to the executive teams, "What are you doing about this?" What are you doing about this? And um, how are you going to respond and give us a position paper and share with us your strategies, et cetera? Now, of course, then the extent to which the board can credibly contribute to that debate is, I think, at the essence of what you're saying. I'll come back to that. I think what bothers me is not just the skills issues, because to expect a bunch of ex-CEOs, ex-CFOs, ex audit partners, ex-corporate lawyers, smart as they may be, but to expect them to be au courant on, on the technology options, choices, pitfalls, to expect them to reflect properly on that is is—it's just not going to happen in an effective yeah. way. And even if you've got the one technology guru on the board, what is it that he or she really is a technology guru of? They may yeah. be an ex-CTO or an ex-CIO, and they may have put in a SAP system and transformed with that. And maybe they've got some experience of a data warehouse or data analytics tools. But, you know, this is such a huge terrain, Sally. You've got to unpack. So when people say we need to be digitally rich, what are you talking about? Yeah. Are you talking about... Uh, machine learning? Or are you talking about data and analytics? Are you talking about robotics? Are you talking about virtual reality? What aspect of digitally literate are you talking about that's really relevant here? So you've got to unpack that box. So I've got two concerns. One is that people, I don't think, properly unpack that box. And secondly, that there's somehow, it seems to me, a perspective that this applies to the enterprise, but not to the board. What do I mean by that? So you would expect that the CEO and his or her team are thinking about ways to embrace relevant parts of digital and AI to transform the business, and they do so well. And well, if you go back to the original assertion I made that the weight of demands on board members are ever increasing, these are part-timers, they may be very smart, capable men and women, well-intentioned, but they're still part-timers and they can't know everything, right? So you then said, well, so you should really say to yourself, well, this isn't just a question of how the enterprise adopts AI or digital. How's the board going to do it? How does the board, for example, work with the CEO and his or her team to say, let's start making real-time decision-making in the board? Not data that went into a board pack six weeks ago, right? Yeah. But how do we use real-time data effectively? Number one, with a date stamp, with the traceability you need to support the decisions you made. But how do we use that? How do we use AI, for example, to reduce our reading load? For example, if we've got—I'm just making this up—but you know, we've got a 500-page audit committee report being prepared. Most of whom would be ex-audit partners, or you know, something yeah. similar to that. Instead of checking through and saying, you know, there is an arithmetic error on page 497, or you didn't quite apply the right standard, or there's a footnote here, etc., how could you get AI to vet what's gone into that? You know, could you find an AI system that actually processes all the data, all the management accounts? all the reports and says, here's the 10 important insights. Now, all of it has to be So You need to know how the algorithm works so that you can depend on it. But that's not a big stretch to find a standard. So that the audit committee can spend four hours actually talking about, so what? What do we do about this gap in our working capital? What do we do about this pending cliff that we're going to walk into regarding an inadequacy of capex or something? You know, that's the real conversation. And of course, not having spent three, four days before that audit committee meeting reading the 600 pages. I hope yeah. you'll find something. It's all done. Now people will start raising their arms saying, yes, but you know, there's an obligation the directors to have read the stuff that's prepared for them. Well, you know, maybe the law needs to catch up with some realities at some point. So let's have that conversation about hey, how AI can help boards act and behave in different ways. So the human in the loop actually yeah. can be effective. So anyway, I want to get off my soapbox on that, but I think that's a more salient conversation perhaps to be had by the board itself about what are we going to do fundamentally to make ourselves more impactful.
1: Yeah, I just love how we flip this on the head from kind of non-executive directors deal with this ever-growing workload to how do we change the way that we serve our organizations so that we can be better at this governance thing that we're obligated to do and free our time up so that we can be more effective in the performance things that the owners and members of these businesses are paying us or not paying us. That's another thing, right? The not-for-profit guys, they're under the same workload They're just not getting paid for it. And a lot of people think because it's not for profit, there's, you know, there's no consequence, but we've got people out there not getting paid for their board roles and their workloads are a burden and they can't do it. That means people are going to stop volunteering, right? We're going to lose our voluntary directorship base in this country, which is just so critical to all of the charities and all of the projects and communities that are out there. So something needs to give, And I love that you're turning that around and asking a different question.
0: If I may just jump in, there's a lovely quote, I'm not sure if he was the originator of it, by Jack Welch, which is, if the rate of change on the outside exceeds the rate of change on the inside, the end is near for the organisation. And as a board, you have to say to yourself, is the rate of change on the outside greater than our rate of change as a board? And I think that's a really important thing to ponder on. We generally want to do the very best we can in the time available to us, but it's the complete hallucination for us to believe that even as eight or 10 well-intentioned, hopefully skilled, constructive directors, that we can stay on top of things. We simply cannot. It's a hallucination. Things are moving very fast. We are Dealing with customers who we might never meet because they're in geographies we can never visit, with suppliers who are dispersed. I call it the great dispersion, right? Different parts of the supply chain. How do we really know what they're thinking about us, what they're saying, what opportunities they may be seeing, what risks they may be seeing? We've got dispersed capital. Very different, a very, very different world. Obviously, Sally, you'd be very strong in this as well, to the world in which boards were designed. Yeah, information went by trade or by steam engine. You yeah, had just a couple of suppliers. You had patient capital, limited investors who had money. You didn't have any of this great dispersion, and so the big question is for boards: is not only how do we get through this, and it's not I'm talking about necessarily at the beginning of time. You can have small companies that have got complicated business models. Yeah. Using supplies in different geographies, they've got different investors, they've got data in different sources. It's a dispersed business model. How do you keep vigilance over that? How can you possibly? Well, you just say, well, we've got to just trust the management's doing the best job. Well, management with the best will in the world can't always do the best job. Do you get the best customer insights you want? Do you rely on the executives to curate that information? And there's a big argument, a big discussion we could have around bias. One of the common forms of bias is an illusion of superiority, where 80% of people, I don't know whether they're men or women, I've never seen the breakdown, perhaps they're more likely to be men, believe they're superior drivers. 80% of directors think their products are superior to those of competitors, but only 8% of their customers say so. Are we live yeah. with an illusion of superiority that somehow as directors, we are going to get a handle on this stuff. That's not going to land us in jail. I think that's hallucination.
1: Yeah, I love that. If you go back to the beginning of boards, back in the days, uh, you know, all the way back to the East India Company, right? When we started pulling our funds to back the ships that were going over and train. right? that's that's the roots of all of this. Yes. And yes. the idea of a board was to ensure that the money was divvied up fairly. That was the whole idea of it. It was a representation to ensure that everyone got their fair due. And then it kind of evolved and we we needed like the rubber stampers on it. You know, are these contracts robust? You know, are we getting the best deal here? And yeah, you know, how can we make more money? So it's obvious that you needed lawyers and finance people and auditors back then in those days. But if you look at modern business, right? Modern business is... About ESG. If you haven't got an ESG policy, a basic foundation for your company, then you haven't got people working for you and you haven't got people buying your product, right? Because this is the council culture now. We just vote with our feet, we vote with our wallets. We're not interested. So, whether you like ESG or not, you are compelled to play in that arena. How many boards have qualified ESG experts on them? To guide the organizations, right? We're living in the information age. This yes. is the age of technology. How many boards have an expert on them with that expertise, right? Another one that we haven't mentioned that is huge is well being. We have so much more awareness and, rightly so, the responsibility for the well being of the people in our organization and the people that use our products and services. And where is the person on the board that has oversight of that? Where's the customer voice on the board? And I speak to a lot of Neds that say, you know, I am the voice of the customer and, you know, that's great. But they're usually on the board because they also happen to be a lawyer or they happen to be a CFO as well. You know, we talk about fit and proper. That has never changed, right? You need to be fit and proper to be on the board. But what we haven't done is challenge that definition, of what fit and proper is, because under the legislation, you're over 18, you haven't been disqualified, you know, you're not bankrupt. So it's basically a lot of negatives, right? You haven't done this, you haven't done that. But I think we just need to expand on what does fit and proper really look like in order to serve modern day businesses today. And I think if you could bring that expertise on the board. And we are seeing this, you know, I'm getting a lot of success yes. with clients from these backgrounds yes. getting onto board, but that's the key, I think, to start the change that we want to see. Yes,
0: yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, look, that's a lovely sort of thread to pull on, Sally. And I think the deeper un- uh, understanding of, well, in the in the proper part, how do we really know that you are on your game? Let's go back to the earlier comment you made, one about not-for-profits, and secondly about how do you provide access to boards of current expertise. So even with your comment around ESG, of course, just finding somebody in the e-space, a guy or girl who is top of their game in the e-space is hard to do, right? Those people, A, to your point, are not going to be attracted to the liability that comes with being a bulldog. Number two, they're top of their game, so they're in full-time employment somewhere, probably, and they don't necessarily have the capacity to do much. And then of course the third one is the critical evaluation by a board that says, well, which aspects of the E, which aspects of the S, which aspects of the G are we actually going to respond to? Because we can't do everything. You know, in this case, yeah. you've got the Sustainability Development Goals, I think there's 17 or something like that. Not all of them apply to every company, right? Not all. Many companies, they may be really interested in biodiversity, but it's not part of their footprint. They don't do anything in that space. So why even bother with it? Not because we don't care, but just we can't care. Yeah. We've just got to focus on climate or water quality or something else, right? So just being laser-like and critical in how you unpack the E, the S, and the G is really, really important. In fact, I should, I'll leave the G aside because I think it's a slightly different category. So firstly, there's a challenge for board. Secondly, where do we find these men and women? How do we tap them, right? So assuming you've done your unpacking, just like you need to do unpacking of what is digital, why is there a inclination to say we need these people on the board? Yes, you need somebody or somebody's on the board who are critical thinkers, very effective listeners, and have got wisdom. But Where's the win-win where the board needs access to that expertise, but most people don't necessarily want to bring the liability. You've got to think about different models. You've got to think about advisory boards of some kind or or other. You have to think about teams that you can tap into and not just pay a large amount of money to a big-name environmental specialist or climate change person, but actually teams that you can tap into. What about your internal teams? What about creating, for example, shadow boards? for your high talent individuals, what about for the not-for-profits putting the word out that says, we don't want you on our board and we probably don't think you need to be on the board in the nicest possible way, but if you know a lot about climate change and you're passionate in about mental health or about drug addiction or whatever the topic is, we've got a wonderful way for you to contribute and guess what, we only need two hours of your time a month. Whatever it is, and there's not an answer reading, you can just rock up and we'll ask you questions, or whatever it is. What about those? And um, what I'm saying isn't particularly insightful or incredibly creative, but you know, why do boards say, Well, we need to find these people and we can't find them? Well, we make do with somebody who says, you know, he or she knows a lot about the E part of ESG, but actually they're dated they you know, they've passed their years by date, or in fact their domain knowledge is too specific. They're biodiversity specialists, but actually we need a water specialist or whatever. I'm just making it up. Yeah. But do you know what yeah. I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. It's always this what I've spoken about in my writing, but also the board of the future research is we've kind of got a closed model of governance, right? And that is eight or ten, supposedly, as I say, well-intentioned, smart, capable men and women who are in a meeting in a boardroom, which is a closed model by and itself, have to pontificate over stuff and come to certain conclusions. We know in the laws of biology that when you're dealing with entropy, which is fast rates of change, systems in stasis, and particularly closed systems, don't tend to do well in a condition of entropy. And so how do we go for an open board system where we've got these nodules or nodes of specialists. There's the specialist in just the climate change. There's a specialist just in cyber. They're not on the board. They don't carry any liabilities, but they're there and accessible to us. And there may be a mix of outsiders, insiders. Why aren't we crowdsourcing some of this? Oh, I'm I love just that. asking the question from people who are current, who are passionate, who want to contribute. Maybe they get paid, maybe they don't, but there is a vehicle and I don't see enough of those vehicles from them.
1: Yeah, I love that. I love that because actually if you have one of everything on the board that causes his own problems right if you've got 10 people on the board all with their own speciality it's all going to be about my speciality right this illusion of superiority no 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 dean the well-being stuff that's critical that's far more important than the the, the data stuff right now so you're just up for a fight then right hey I've absolutely loved catching up with you today I'm just going to reference that report again because you have talked a lot about what's in that report. In particular, I'm loving those notes that you're talking about, those different philosophies, those different suggestions for the way that boards can deliver on their governance obligations. They're all in this report. It's free to download. It's the Board of the Future summary report. and We will put a link into the show notes today. Dean, just in closing, I'll just ask you, what would be your top tips for any board that wanted to start to think about how could we do this? Better.
0: I'll answer you two quick ways, and hopefully they're quick. The one is we talk about ESG, and I said the governance is a separate case. So perhaps the first way that boards can approach this is to say, for the G of ESG, what is sustainable governance for us? What does sustainable governance look like? And it's not necessarily the mix of directors and how they remunerated and some of the other observable stuff, but start in the negative, say, well, it's not sustainable to have these huge packs. It's not sustainable to expect that we can know effectively the insights across these 10 or 20 topics. That's simply not sustainable. It's not sustainable for us to be in a position where the work is divvied out by committees, but these are very joined up topics. It's not sustainable for us to just be talking compliance rather than strategy and stewardship, etc." So You can start in the negative, or you can say, what does sustainability really look like for us if we're going to be sustainable and effective? The second part is to say, well, what is our purpose as a board? Go back to your board vision and purpose. And I think you'll have seen this many times. People come onto boards with different expectations of what being a director is. I don't see too many boards where they go back to recalibrate this often to say, let's just check. Why are we here? I say I'm on a board because I want to keep the bastards on us, right? Or whatever I say. Yeah. I want to check that nobody's pulling a fast one with the audit reports. Sally's there because she actually wants to lead to better decisions of a better world. Now, how do we square that circle to say, well, collectively we're here because of this. And this is how we're going to judge ourselves at the end of the day. So I think going back to saying, what is your purpose as a board? We talk about corporate purpose. We'll come back to your purpose as a board. Maybe then we decide, are we a minimalist board or are we an expansionist board? And what does that mean? If we're expansionist, how does that operate? Which topics do we pay attention to? And which do we say not? Et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the vertical conversation. How deep do we go in those topics? I think it's a long-winded answer, but it's barely scratching the surface in terms of the way boards need to think about why are they there. And therefore, how does that translate into what they do, what they pay attention to the conversations they have, et cetera? I think a recalibration is often an underestimated exercise for boards.
1: Yeah, I love that. And, you know, underpinning that for non-executive directors to look within and think about what is my purpose, what's my value proposition, what do yes. I want to bring? And it's just an environment where I can continue to do that. And then I think we would see less of this, you know same people sticking on the board for decades and and i mean there's a value in that for some organizations but it does kind of clog up the opportunities for others coming in Uh, so much to unpack there dean thank you so much for joining us today i've really enjoyed that conversation really thought-provoking thank you so much for joining us
0: it was an absolute pleasure thank you Sally.
1: Thanks very much for tuning in. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode and what you took away from it. I'd also love to know what topics you're interested in hearing about in the future and which experts you think should be featured on this Board Success podcast. If you enjoyed listening, please share with your colleagues who might also have an interest and make sure you click to follow or subscribe to be advised about upcoming episodes in the meantime if you're a leader or a successful executive and you're looking to launch your board career or if you're an established non-executive director and you're ready for the next level check out the resources we have available for you on the website at boardcoachinginstitute.com.au until next time here's to your board success